0: Well, last week, as we closed out Judges chapter 7, we saw this, this amazing story of, of God's faithfulness to Gideon. And as we've been going through, we saw, we've seen Gideon's faith waver a number of times. He sort of doubts, and he questions, and he's not really engaging in the Lord's plan 100%. But every time Gideon wavers, we see the Lord... Continue to, to take care of Gideon, to show himself faithful to Gideon despite Didion, Gideon's lack of faith. And so, not only did we witness this amazing victory, but we saw the, the supernatural, miraculous hand of God as Gideon delivered the people from the Midianites. And today we're going to see the conclusion of this story. And it's frankly, it's a It's a sad conclusion. Right? Gideon does well. He takes these steps of faith. And then he he sort of reaches this point and things kind of go downhill. And that's what we're going to look at today. Starting in chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hand the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Have you ever been maybe getting ready to move, or you needed help with something, and you have a friend who knows that you might ask them to help, and so the whole week they sort of mysteriously avoid you, and then afterwards, after you're all done with the move and you've unpacked, they show up. They say, oh, you should have asked me. I would have helped. That's exactly what's going on here. Right, I don't think that the men of Ephraim, they, I don't think that they really wanted to fight. I don't think they really wanted to engage in this battle. They were just upset that they didn't get any credit for what happened. Right, They were just upset that they didn't get the glory for defeating Midian. And G. Campbell Morgan talks about this a little bit. And he says this. He says that, that this reveals what was in their true heart. Right, this reveals their, their true attitude towards God. And he says, it's easier to talk about serving the Jesus than to actually serve Jesus. It's easier to talk about serving Jesus than it is to actually serve him. Right? And what he's saying is this. It's a lot easier to talk a good game than it is to put in the hard work. And the people, they say, look, why have, you, why have you done this to us, Gideon? Why have you excluded us? Why have you left us out? And Gideon says, look, guys, what have I really done? What have I done in comparison with all of the great things that you have done? And he says, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebizer? And what he's talking about is this. Gleaning is sort of what was left over after the harvest, right? After the harvesters went through, you know, sometimes they would drop some of the grapes on the ground. Sometimes maybe a couple of the grapes weren't ripe, and they would leave them on the vine. And, and so what Gideon is saying is, look, the stuff that you've left behind is better than all the stuff that we're bringing in. Right? And what Gideon has to do is he has to massage their egos a little bit here. He says, look, Our greatest efforts aren't even... They're nothing compared to just the stuff that you leave behind. He says, we're nothing compared to you guys. He says, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided, and they said this. So, remember, in the last chapter, after the Lord defeated the Midianite army, we saw that the men of Ephraim, they killed two of these princes of Midian. They killed this guy named Oreb and this guy named Zeb. So Gideon says, look, you guys got the glory of, of killing their princes. What did I do, he says. I took 300 fat, broken down old men, and we blew some trumpets, and we made some noise, and we broke a couple of jars. I don't see what you guys are so upset about. And so it says, their anger subsided. And, Gordian, and, Gideon, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, and he and the 300 men who were with him were exhausted, yet they pursued. So Gideon is back on the trail. He's chasing the Midianites who had escaped. And it notes that they were tired. Right? They've been tracking these guys all day long. They're exhausted. But they're still in the game. Right? They're still in pursuit. And I love this about Gideon here. And there's a, a quote that I love talking about Christian ministry. And I don't know who said it. I've heard it ascribed to Spurgeon. I've heard it ascribed to D.L. Moody. And I looked it up, but I couldn't find who actually said it. But it says something to this effect. I get tired in the work, but not of the work. And it's such a great sentiment. When we're serving the Lord, Oftentimes, we get tired. When we serve the Lord, we get worn out sometimes. We're tired in the service of God, but we don't get tired of serving God. And that's what we see. These guys were exhausted in their service to the Lord, but they kept pushing on. They kept pushing forward. And so verse 5, He said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon, he gets to Succoth, and he asks the men of the town, he says, look it, we're on the trail, we're pursuing our enemies, give us a quick bite to eat so we can re-energize and we can keep on going. Give us a little something to drink to wash it down and we'll be on our way. He says, my guys, they're they're beat. They're exhausted. We've been chasing them all day long. And look at the reply from the men of Succoth. They said, have you already captured them? Well, I guess not. I don't see them. Why don't you come back after you've caught them and then we'll give you something to eat. And so there's a couple things at play here. On one hand, they're probably looking at Gideon and this ragtag group of soldiers that he has. And it's like, you don't, you don't have a chance. How are you going to catch this army? How are you going to defeat these guys? You, you can't even catch your breath. You think you're going to catch them? And also, right, if if the people of Succoth helped Gideon and he didn't win and the Midianite army came back through, what would happen? They would be accused of collusion, right? And they would be destroyed. And so it's like, we're... You win the victory, and then we'll help you out. So Gideon said, verse 7, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. Gideon says, well, we're going to catch them either way, with or without your help. But, since you guys don't, won't help, after we win, we're going to come back, and I'm going to chop down some blackberry bushes, and we're going to whip you with them. We're going to flail your flesh. He's a nice guy. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So Gideon moves on to the next town, the same thing happens. And Gideon's getting a little upset now. He says, look, I'm going to come back in peace, he says, and when I do, I'm going to come and I'm going to break down your town. I'm going to kick down your tower. I'm going I'm to destroy you guys. And, and Gideon's responses here are a little odd maybe, but man, I do like his confidence in the Lord. Right, we see this, this certainty of victory in his life here. He says, when I win, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to deal with you guys. Now, verse 10. Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Now Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and... Jogbeha, and attacked the enemy, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. So again, Gideon here, he's got his little troop, he's got 300 guys, and they're pursuing 15,000 soldiers. Right, this is a huge act of faith, isn't it? But Gideon's thinking, look, the Lord already struck down uh, 120,000 of them. What's another 15,000? And so Gideon, he's chasing these guys in a a southeasterly direction, sort of chasing them back out of Israel into the region that's called Transjordan. And after about 25 or 30 miles, he finally catches up to the army when they make camp in this place called Karkor. And Gideon, And his guys, right, they might not have been the youngest, they might not have been in the best shape, but they're a small mobile fighting force chasing after 15,000 men. So naturally they're going to be moving much faster. And so we don't know all the details, we don't know exactly what happened, but Gideon and his guys catch up. And the guy, maybe the army, they felt secure because it was a small force. Maybe they felt secure because they thought they were so far away. But it says that they were relaxed. They're just kind of chilling in their camp, and Gideon attacks. And again, there must have been a, a, an element of that same divine intervention that we saw in chapter 7. And the whole army, all 15,000 guys, they go into this panic. And Ziba and Zalmuna they take off running again. And it reminds me a little bit of Proverbs chapter 28. Remember Proverbs 28, 1? It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You see the contrast Solomon is making here. He says, The wicked will run away from anything, but those who walk with the Lord, they have nothing to fear. They can be as bold as a lion right? Ziba and Zalmun and this whole army, they get worked up into a panic over nothing, really, right? There's 15,000 of them, and there's 300 fat old men coming against them. They have nothing to fear, right? Gideon is, is bold, though. Gideon is chasing them. He's going against an army that's, that's 50 times his size, and so we see this this panic, this fear in the unbelievers, and this boldness in the people of God. And consequently, this verse in Proverbs 28 is why I don't go jogging. Right? I try not to run unless I'm being chased. Verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joe. Some of you guys are just reading the verse and thinking about that. It's, it's coming to you. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth. Seventy-seven men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmuna already in your hand? That we should give you bread to your men who are exhausted. And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and the briars with them and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Then he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So Gideon, he comes back through and he says, look, look who I've got, fellas. I've got, I've got, I've got these guys that you were taunting me about. And then he goes through and says he taught him a lesson. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He he whips them with the briars. And then he goes back to Penuel and he, he kicks down the tower. And then what does he do? It says he kills all the men of the city. It seems like at this point, we start to see the downfall of Gideon a little bit. Gideon, there's no indication that when he when he does this, when he takes on these acts of vengeance that he's, that he's operating under the direction of the Lord. It kind of seems like, look, you guys, distra- di- you guys disrespected me. You guys made me look bad in front of my boys. So I'm going to get you back. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna take my vengeance on you. And interestingly, remember earlier in the chapter when he's confronted by the men of Ephraim? And they're like, why didn't you take any?" Who, who am I? Remember, he gives that whole thing. I think this is what he wanted to do to the men of Ephraim as well. Right? He just couldn't because the men of Ephraim were too powerful. So he gets to this situation where he, where he has the numbers to take vengeance, and this is exactly what he does. I, I, I think that we begin to see here Gideon's character revealed a little bit. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men... Whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would save them alive, I would not kill you. Now, some commentators believe that Gideon here is referring to a a specific situation that took place in Tabor, where these two kings, they, they oversaw a, a public execution of Gideon's brothers. And so Gideon asks these two captured Midianite rulers, he says, hey, what happened to those men back in Tabor? And the kings replied, as you are, so were they. They looked just like you. And Gideon says, well, that's because they were my brothers. That's because they were the sons of my mother. Now, I think this gives us a little a little bit of insight here. It's kind of interesting. I think it explains a couple things to us. Remember earlier when Gideon goes and he tears down the altar of Baal? And remember the people of the village want to come out and they want to put him to death? And Joash comes out and says, hey, You better better leave my son alone or I'm going to put you to death. I think Joash was particularly protective over Gideon at this point because his other sons had already been executed. And it also, I think, explains why Gideon was so relentless in pursuing these two kings. Right, It wasn't just that the Lord was using him to take out the Midianites. I think he had a personal vendetta against these two kings. And that sort of explains what's about to happen next, starting in verse 20. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So up to this point, it's sort of just been an an interesting narrative, kind of talking about how Gideon followed up on the battle from last week. But as we move into verse 22 here, there's this shift, sort of this this tragic shift in the narrative. As I mentioned, it seems a little like Gideon is is chasing these guys more from a a personal vendetta. And so he's got the kings here, and he calls up his firstborn son, Jether. He says, here they are. These guys killed your uncles. I I want you to kill them. I want you to execute them. And scripture notes that Jether was still a youth. He was a young man, and he was, he was afraid to kill them. And so the kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, they say to Gideon, look, if you're going to kill us, just be a man about it. Just kill us yourself. And so Gideon, he stands up, and he executes them. And it says that he takes the collars off of their camels, which is kind of a bizarre side note, isn't it? But we'll see why in a little bit. Apparently, they were made of, of some precious materials that Gideon was going to use. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So at this point, The men of the men of Israel say, Okay, Gideon, you've done a great job. You've defeated the Midianites, you've driven them out, you've you you've 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 set us free from the bondage that we are under. You're you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. You're just the kind of guy we want to be king. And so what we want to do is we want to start a royal dynasty right here. We want you to be our king, we want your son to be our next king, we want your grandson after him. Now, here's the thing. Leading up to this point, it was clear that it was the Lord who had done the work, not Gideon, right? Remember, we saw that earlier in chapter 7, when Gideon sent out the call for his troops, 32,000 men show up, and the Lord says, no, we got to trim it down. And they trimmed it down to 10,000 and then from 10,000, they trimmed it down to 300. Because the Lord said, if I, if I give the, the victory to this many people, they're going to take credit for it. They're not going to give me the credit. And this is exactly what we see happening now. The people, even though God was clearly the one doing the work, the people begin to give Gideon credit. They say, look, Gideon, you saved us. Gideon, you delivered us. Gideon, you be our king. And Gideon here... He gives the people the right answer. He says, no, I'm not going to be your king. Neither will my sons be your kings. The Lord will rule over his people. And at this moment, it seems like Gideon is in the right frame of mind here. He says the right things. Unfortunately, we're going to see in the coming verses that his actions betray his words. His actions betray his true heart. Verse 24, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. So Gideon says, Look, I don't want to be king. But I have this one request from you. Give me all the earrings that you took from the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. Now apparently this was a thing that the the Midianites would all wear all these golden earrings. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So the people, they had just wanted to make Gideon king, and he says no. He says, but but give me some gold. Give me me the earrings that you got. And it says the people were happy to do it. So they spread out a cloak, and they throw in all the gold that they had collected, and all the other jewelry, all this stuff, all the collars that they'd taken off the camels. And the author notes that just the gold alone was 1,700 shekels. That would be about 43 pounds of gold, plus all the other loot. So this is, this is a couple million dollars that we're talking about that Gideon requests in tribute. And the issue wasn't even necessarily the money that he connected. It, it, was, it, was, it wasn't the gold that was Gideon's undoing. It was how he's about to use the gold that causes his downfall. Verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it. And he put it in his city in Ophrah. And all the people whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So Gideon it says that he makes this golden ephod. Now an ephod is basically a fancy shirt that the high priest would wear as he's ministering in the tabernacle or in the temple. And so Gideon makes himself one of these high priestly garments. And he takes it and he puts it in his city. And I imagine it was probably beautiful, right? It's the blingiest of blingy shirts, right? It was, it was the solid gold chainmail thing. But here's why it was such an egregious act. Gideon does two things. When he creates this golden ephod, the first thing, it's almost as if he's trying to depose the Levitical priesthood. Right? It's almost as though he's making himself the new high priest. Right? He's there, he sets up this new shrine, he's got this new area of worship, he's wearing the high priestly clothes, like he's wanting people to come to him for for spiritual advice. And setting up a new priesthood was something that the Lord clearly never commanded Gideon to do. And secondly, the people began to worship this golden ephod in an idolatrous way. It says that the people hoard after it. And this phrase, it comes up a number of times in Judges. And remember, it was sort of the, the premise of the whole book of Hosea, right? Talking about God's people when they go after other gods. And he's talking about when, when God's people allow other things to take a position of prominence in their lives. He says it's like committing spiritual adultery. And I think this expression, they hoard after it, it, it signifies what a problem it was. It wasn't just like they one time committed this spiritual adultery, but there was a, it was this ongoing thing that they continued to do. And verse 29 It says, Jerobel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. And that's a reference to Gideon there. It says, now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. Now remember again, Gideon says, you know, I don't want to be the king. The Lord's going to be your king. But what do we find Gideon doing? He's living like a king, isn't he? He's acting like a king. He, we find him taking tribute from the people. And it says that he takes for himself many wives. And we don't know exactly how many wives he took, but it must have been a fairly large harem, right? Because he has 70 sons, and probably as many daughters. He's got well over a 100 kids. And of course, we know this, this practice of, of having a large harem, it was, it was partly political in nature, right? If you were a ruler and you had a, a, a rival tribe or kingdom next to you, oftentimes you or your son might marry their daughter. Because if, if their daughter was part of your family, they probably weren't going to attack you. And so he's sort of establishing these, these relationships with the people around him, setting himself up as the, as the de facto ruler of the region. We see this, this, this consolidation of, of power that Gideon is doing, this, this showing of his wealth. And the writer also notes that he has another son with, with a concubine in Shechem. And the son's name is Abimelech. And here's what's interesting. Abimelech means my father the king. Oh, I'm not going to be your king. But he names his son my dad the king. Again, Gideon's actions sort of betray his words, don't they? And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father, at Ophrah of the Aborazites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and horde after the Baals, and made baal Berith their god, Baal of the covenant. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them, from the hand of their, all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So the chapter closes here. And Gideon, it says he passes away at a good old age. And he's buried in the family tomb. But look at verse 32. It says as soon as Gideon passes away, what happens? They bring their idols right back out. Right? It seems like Gideon's body hasn't even cooled off yet. And the people make Baal-barith their god. And there's a little side note there. It says Baal-barith means Baal of the covenant. And, you know, in the Old Testament in particular, it talks about Jehovah God being the god of the covenants. And so we see them replacing God with Baal. And they're worshiping, worshiping Baal of the covenants. And during Gideon's time, it seems like before he died, the people, they were were sort of conforming on the outside, right? They were sort of following the rules on the outside, but apparently there was no inward change in their lives. They were following the rules, but there was no conversion, right? They seemed like they continued to be the same idolatrous people that they had always been. And it's interesting, I have seen this so many times over the course of my ministry. Over the time that I've been serving the Lord. People, they start coming to church, and when they start coming to church, you know, they stop drinking, and they stop smoking, and they stop cussing, and, and they start wearing all the right clothes, and, you know, they, they, they get a little religion in their lives, and they clean themselves up. But so often, nothing happens on the inside. They fix all the external stuff, but there's no, there's no transformation. There's no regeneration. Right? There's no, there's no conversion. And it's just sort of an, an outward conforming to what they think a Christian should look like. And that never lasts. You know, when you're just trying to fix the outside without dealing with the spiritual, when you're fixing the external without dealing with the internal, it doesn't last. And we see that here. The people fixed the outside when Gideon was judging, but once he died, the people forgot all about the Lord who had delivered them. And this is a sad ending to this section of Scripture. And as we close, I just want to look at, at what lessons we can take from this. It's kind of a very scattered, weird passage. But what, what lessons can we take? What can we apply from our lives other than not to go jogging? Right? Which might be enough for some of you. First, it's easier to talk the talk than it is to walk the walk, right? And we see this example from the men of Ephraim, that we don't want to just talk about our desire to serve the Lord. We need to actually do it. We need to make sure that our actions are speaking louder than our word. And the reality is our actions will always speak louder than our words. We need to make sure that our actions and our words are in agreement, that they're not contradicting each other. Because no one is going to listen to what you have to say if your lifestyle doesn't match it. Second, as Spurgeon or maybe D.L. Moody said, I get tired in the work, but not of the work. As we serve the Lord, as we live out our faith, as we, as we pour out our lives before the Lord, we're going to grow weary. We're going to get tired. We get, we get worn out in our service to God. But if we're doing it right, we get tired in the ministry, but not tired of the ministry. And I can think of times when I was, when I was on the mission field, we'd have back-to-back teams you know, and I'd be have two or three weeks of straight sixteen-hour days, and I could think of times when when it was over, I was so tired I could barely stand. Like, man, I, I'm just I'm just utterly exhausted. But despite that, there's still a joy in serving the Lord. There's this joy in, in being about the business of God, even when we're tired. Right? It'd probably even more when we're tired. His strength is revealed through us when we're exhausted and we keep pressing forward, right? his his strength and his goodness are manifested through us. And I I think that that's our call as believers. No matter how tired we are, no matter how worn out we are, we're always pushing forward. We're always advancing the kingdom. We're always pressing on. And in the midst of our exhaustion, in the midst of our tiredness, God shows up. And he strengthens us. And he does the work through us. Third, as we've seen so many times already in the book of Judges, we need to be very careful as to what things we allow to take a position of prominence in our hearts. We as as humanity, as people, I I think we're naturally, we're prone to idolatry. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that God has planted eternity in the human heart. We were, we were created to worship. We were made to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we have this hole in us that, that wants to be worshiping something. And and when God's absent, we try to, to fill that hole with all kinds of other stuff like we talked about the other week. You know, so often we can make careers our idol, or relationships, or or all these other things. When we're not worshiping God, we'll allow anything in that spot. And as Christians, we need to be careful because because those things are always vying for our attention. They're always vying for our affections. And we need to make sure that, that God alone sits on the throne of our hearts. Lastly, and this isn't directly related to the text, but remember in Hebrews chapter 11, we find this this sort of record of of the saints of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as the hall of faith. And and the author talks about, we have this, this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, all these examples from the Old Testament. Guess who's recorded on that list of saints from the Old Testament? Gideon. Gideon, this Gideon? This Gideon who was prone to idolatry, this Gideon who struggled with faith, this Gideon who would get mad and kill people, he's recorded as one of the saints of the Old Testament. Man, I, I love this, that despite his sins, despite his lack of faith, despite his failures, God saw Gideon as a man of faith. See, God didn't look at Gideon through the lens of Gideon's failures. God saw Gideon through the lens of Gideon's faith. And in the same way, God doesn't look at us through the lens of our sins. He doesn't look at us through the lens of our failures. He doesn't look at me and see all of my shortcomings. When God looks at me as a, as, as a believer, as a Christian, as a part of the church, He looks at me through the lens of His Son, Jesus Christ. When God looks at me, He sees me through the lens of the blood of Jesus. And, and I hope that you've picked that up over the course of, of listening to me preach. Right? When, when God looks at us, He doesn't see us. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. And, and I've mentioned this a number of times, but it's relevant, so I, so I want to talk about this again. In the Old Testament, right? the Lord records many of the failures as well as the successes of his, of his believers there, right? He records many of the sins of the Old Testament saints. But in the New Testament, there's no mention of any of the failures of the Old Testament believers. Think about that for a second. In the New Testament, there's no mention of the sins of any of the Old Testament saints. Aside from being an interesting tidbit of trivia, I think it's revealing concerning how the Lord views us. When we are in Christ, when we repent, when we turn from our sins, the Lord no longer sees it. He no longer remembers it. it. It's no longer recorded. It says in the Psalms that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. God sees you and I as righteous, not because of ourselves, but he sees us as righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God sees you as righteous. Now go and be the person that God sees you as. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of these passages and judges passages are just, they're weird. There's weird stuff in there, stuff that's hard to understand but we thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches us and guides us. And we pray that you would help us to to glean the lessons that you have for us as we continue through Judges. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.